This is a very Christmassy verse, isn't it? It's all part of that idyllic Christmas scene where we sort of drift along enjoying the festive cheer and the, and the semi-coma from too much turkey. Sometimes verses like this can become so wrapped up in, in all that cultural ribbons and, and tied up in our experiences that the actual meaning, the real point, gets obscured by a million bright, flickering memories of the ideal postcard Christmas that we all idolize. So we want to enjoy that festive cheer, but also be careful that that, that fuzzy feeling that we get looking at the plastic star on top of the tree doesn't obscure the majesty that there is when we look up to the heavens. This morning, we're going to try and, and tear off some of those cultural layers and, and look at this verse and see how we still need Jesus so that we can know that joy and hope that this, that this season should bring us. Not just looking, looking back to the story, but looking forward as well. So let's dive in to Isaiah. Now, verses 1 to 3, along with chapter 8 before it, give us the context for our joy. In the verse just before the passage, we see that the people will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and, there, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So that's a pretty stark picture here. Firstly, with the gloom of anguish. Now, now gloom there is used to, to be understood to be the sort of thing of, of kind of like being left wanting, to be without resources or, or knowing which way to turn. And so this anguish that is coming is, is going to leave the people essentially without hope, not knowing what to do. They will be utterly controlled by these oppressors who are coming in. And then we read about thick darkness, which is supposed to give us this sense of already being in death. So think about it. The oppression that is coming is going to make people feel so hopeless that they might as well already be dead. But then in chapter 9, we get this message of hope, a light shining in the darkest of places. And this contrast is set up by having the same two words of, of gloom and anguish mentioned again here. But this time telling us that, that even though there's going to be anguish, so, so there will be suffering, it will not lead to that gloom that leaves us without any hope. In the former time, yes, that happened. Anguish led to gloom and the gloom of darkness. But now, or, or in the latter time, we read that God has made glory come from those regions. If you look to your Bibles there, Zebulun and Naphtali are, are actually around and in Galilee. So we are seeing that from this same place where formerly there was such gloom and such darkness, now a light shines. So right at the start, we could see a contrast being set up here between contempt and glory, between darkness and light, between gloom and joy. And when we have these contrasts, it's very easy for us to to sort of brush over the darkness, to forget the context. We so easily forget our own context too, where we think that basically everything is, is okay, everyone is good, and all, although it might be nice if our friends became Christian, they're really doing okay on their own. Like they're, they're, like they're nice people, and Christ would just be that, that final piece of the puzzle. Or maybe for us, we think that we're pretty good, we come to church, we know the stories. 
And so we start to forget just what God has done to bring us to this point. Just what a miracle it is that we actually believed in him. We start to view ourselves as good people and we forget where we came from. Not getting this context is like looking out at our windows, seeing the darkness as just a backdrop that makes the decorations pretty and forgetting the the biting cold outside and the wailing of the wind. Isaiah is wanting us to see here that outside of this light, outside of Christ, is darkness and despair and hopelessness. To remind us that, that left to ourselves, we would be out in the cold, shivering in that total darkness. And yet into that land of darkness, of contempt, of deserving judgment, God brought glory. And to people who walked in darkness or lived out that rebellion against God, a light shines. Not just a light somewhere off in the distance, like like a light at the end of the tunnel, something that we have to reach. But the light shines upon us. Like, Like the door of a cozy house opening and the light spilling out onto us, warming us in its glow. And to that nation that was being decimated, oppressed, pushed down, look at verse 3. He multiplies them. He brings growth. Now remember that God promised Abraham that that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And so this, this idea of increase is like they're coming back under God's blessing after having been under his punishment and his judgment. And added to that, he also increases their joy. So instead of where in chapter 8, verse 21, their situation is described as being distressed as, as a, at oppressors passing through the land and hunger abounding. Now in verse 3, they are joyous like people at the harvest and like warriors dividing the spoils. So it's a complete turnaround of images here. Instead of the hopelessness of starvation, they have the joy of a starving people seeing the harvest come in. Instead of the fear of seeing warriors coming for you, It's the relief at surviving a battle. It's the thrill of victory. The idea that your family was safe and and, and not just protected, but now that you can bless them with wealth. These are images of of utter joy. These are images of what awesome transformation God makes in the lives of his people. It's not just an added bonus, not just a nice addition, but instead of contempt, we have glory. Instead of darkness, we have light. Instead of gloom, we have joy. And then if you look in verses 4, 5, and 6, we're given the reasons for this joy. Three reasons, each verse starting with the word four. For the yoke of his burden in verse 4, for every boot in verse 5, and for, for to us a child is born in verse 6. And the same Hebrew word starts these lines here, holding up these three reasons as the basis for our joy. It's saying that we have joy for this reason, for this reason, and for this reason. So let's look at those reasons. Let's look at verse four. For the yoke of his burden. Now to really get the idea of this verse, we need to understand the day of Midian. It's it's not very Christmassy, but the day is referring to Judges six and seven where Israel turned away from the Lord and he allowed the Midianites to come in and rule over Israel. In Judges six, we read that they destroyed Israel's livelihood, leaving no sustenance for the people. And then God raises up Gideon and we have the story where he organizes this huge army, but the Lord slowly whittles it down to just 300 men. So it's obvious that it was God who gave them the victory. So they have joy like on the day of Midian 
when they were freed from an oppressor and restored to being a nation. What this image is giving them is, is a reminder of them being of the need to be saved from slavery. The only difference for, for life without God then and for now is that we don't see our chains. People feel free in padded cells because they're just so comfy. And yet they're just as much as enslaved to sin as the Israelites were to their oppressors. Chained to smartphones and social media, driven to work for selfish gain, identity given by what people can do rather than who they are. In worshiping gods of this world, our culture sacrifices babies, pushes others down to get ahead, and spits in the face of the only one who can bring relief. But that doesn't have to be our story. That doesn't have to be who we are because we have been, been freed from the chains of sin and death. The light shining on us, the spirit illuminating our hearts is a reason for joy like on the day of Midian as God frees us from slavery. So don't long after the things of this world as if the Christian message restricts you from living. But see it for what it is. It's freedom, freedom from sin, freedom to look to God. Oh, praise the Lord that you've been set free, that the yoke that you have is not the heavy, oppressive yoke of sin, but instead you carry the yoke of Jesus, easy and light. This Christmas, as you rejoice with family around the tree, rejoice as well that you were set free and know that for that, reason, for that freedom, we need Jesus. We need him to set us free. And we need to keep trusting in him so that we aren't tempted to go back and be enslaved again to this world. Our second reason for joy comes in verse 5. For every bit of the tramping warrior will be burned as fuel for the fire. You might read something differently if you're using a different translation or if you're following along in a paraphrase. But the Hebrew there sets up this as the next four, the next reason for joy. And what it gives us is an image of peace of the clothing of the warriors being burned up, their uniforms no longer needed. Early in Isaiah, we read the famous verse, the famous line about beating their, their swords into the plowshares. And, and this is a similar image for the, the end of violence of peace reigning. Now, hopefully, as I say that, you're getting a little echo of what we've been talking about back in our Genesis series, where God's shalom, his, his peace, reigned over the garden before mankind descended into violence and sin. This is connecting in here the big picture where God is bringing his reign to mankind. So we have joy because peace reigns. For the Israelites, this would have been a very concrete sense of this. But it's no less true for today, even when there's no earthly war. Because after the fall, we know that, that all of mankind was in rebellion to God. Knowing that God is king, we tried to take his crown. We rebelled and made war against God. And so in Romans chapter 8, it tells us that the mind that is set in the flesh, and that means the things of this world, is hostile to God. Before Jesus pulled us out of darkness, we were all in that state of hostility towards God. All mankind is the same. Just look around and you will see that people hate God. Our natural inclination is to try and live independently of him so that the relationship is, is, is broken, it's, it's distant, it's hostile. 
but it's not a war that we can win, and the fighting of it just seems to bring us more and more harm. We can see it as people give themselves over to sin, how addiction destroys people, how greed eats people from the inside, how pride poisons every good thing. Our enmity with God, it's not good for us. It doesn't bring joy, no matter what people tell themselves. It cannot bring fulfillment, no matter what the world promises. But this peace, peace between man and God, walking with our Lord, not, not wanting, lying down in green pastures, seeing the wolf lie down with a lamb, everything moving in the way that it was created to, the shalom of God resting upon us, that is fulfillment, that is contentment, that is a reason for joy. And for that peace, we need Jesus. We need him to take our sin so that we can have that relationship with God. If you're out there today and you don't know Jesus, you have to understand that there is no way for you to come close to God, no way to have peace with God or with yourself if you don't know Jesus. And for those of us who do know him, we need to be constantly leaning on him for our peace and our assurance, for the peace of our souls. We need Jesus. And then in verse 6, our final reason for joy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Here at last we have the messianic hope, the, the golden thread that runs through the Bible from that promise given in the garden, traced through that family line in Genesis, imaged in the kings of Israel, sung about in the Psalms, promised by the prophets, where God's anointed one would crush the head of the serpent to defeat death and bring us into his kingdom. This is the true king who holds true authority and he will be called Wonderful Counselor because we will not just approve of his counsel, but wonder at it. It is the wisdom beyond our understanding. It is the wisdom of our true king, mighty God, the strength not just of a mortal, but of God, everlasting father because of the authority, but also the compassion and the protection and the tenderness of a father exhibited beyond what a human can show. Prince of peace, an explicitly royal title linked to the shalom, the, the wholeness, the completeness of our identity. Wisdom, strength, compassion, completion. The sense that we should get is that we should have joy because the one who is coming to save us is God himself. Not just a very good person, but God, Emmanuel, has come. The light, which is the life to all mankind, doesn't just bring gifts, but it brings the giver. Better than freedom, better than peace. In Jesus, we get God. We get a relationship with the Almighty. We get union with the fount of all blessing. The final reason for joy is that God comes to us. He comes as a son so that we can see that we are made part of his family. And he comes as a king so that we can see that he is Lord over us. In response to this hopeless situation where oppressors are all around, the final reason for joy is that this individual will save them. We can have joy because Jesus comes. It seems at times around Christmas there's more joy thinking about Santa than coming than Jesus. That what we need isn't saving, it's, it's blessing. We just need more stuff. 
And even for adults, that, that seems to be the way the world works. If we just had the new thing, then we'd be happy. Or we're content because of our standard of life. The reality of, of what we have been saved from, the reality of our need of saving, just gets drowned out by the noise of our culture. And so why would we rejoice over a savior when we are fine as we are? If nothing else, we need Jesus to show us our need for him. We need Jesus to save us from our unbelief. The joyous news, though, is that, is that God didn't leave us out in the cold. He didn't leave us in that darkness and gloom, unable to come to him. Instead, he came down to us. He made the first move. He reached out. He promised a savior. He made a way for us to come to God. Our joy is grounded in our need to be freed from sin, to be at peace with God, and for a savior to come. And here we see how God fulfills all of this for us. From out in the cold to warm by the fire. That is the joy that this text is pointing to. We've seen so far the context of this verse and the reasons for joy in it. And finally, we come to verse 7, where we see the consequences of God's work and what it'll be for us. The government shall be on his shoulders. When we think of Jesus as King or Lord in our lives, it can often just be like a title. But what we see here in verse 7 is that for the people on whom the light has shone, their future will be increasingly under the authority of Jesus. And as we grow in that, there's also an increase in peace. So what we have here is the result of the true king coming is that we grow in dependence upon God once again, and the shalom that was in the beginning is made more and more manifest within us. Can, can you see how this prophecy fits into that great biblical arc that we began in Genesis? How we are in a desperate state, but God comes to bring about the dependence and, and relationships that we are created for. The result of all this is that God will bring us to himself, that he will save us from our sin, not because of anything that we have done, but because, as verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And although for each other part of this verse, we can see our need of Jesus as looking back and seeing what he has done, now here we are to look forward. Because here we have the consequences of Christ coming laid out for us all the way out into eternity. This Advent season, we will rightly look back to the manger and celebrate God coming to us. But we're not going to do that as a people yearning for a better time, afraid of that future. Because we know because of this verse that whatever comes, whatever new virus, whatever restrictions, whatever anguish that might come our way, it cannot defeat the Lord of hosts. No mandate, no economic policy, not even death itself can stop this. When God's light shone on you, Christian, it began a work that God will bring to completion. And although there might be seasons where you, you feel far from God or where you feel you can't feel him working in you, you can trust that he is increasing his government over you so that you can walk more and more in step with him. Yes, there might be sins in your life that you wish weren't there, but there is no gloom, no, no sense that there is no hope because God is with us and he will mold us and shape us. So do you believe that? Do you come here expecting that God is going to change you? 
Do you open your Bible trusting that God is going to mold you through reading it? Do you fall to your knees knowing that God hears your prayers? Now, even if you don't at the moment, when you go home, read this verse again. Look at what, is, what God is telling you that he will do. And over this next week before Christmas, come back to it again and again. Let it seep into your bones so that you can see what it means to say that to us, a child is born. And experience the increase of dependence and trust in him in your lives. For some of us, this will be our last Christmas. But if you know Christ, then the hum of carols will be replaced by the sound of blaring trumpets as you come into the presence of your king. Not even death itself can stop the increase of this government. So yes, this Christmas, look back to the manger and marvel at God coming. But don't forget that this isn't the end of the story and that one day we will join with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and we will see and worship our great God. The reasons for joy don't just point us backward, but forward to a great future with God. And so as we go from here, we need to be constantly reminding one another of the reasons that we have for joy. Not just the candles and the mince pies, not just the, the family being all together again, but the joy of our Lord coming and the hope for that glorious day when his family joins together again. So how can you do that? How can you remind each other of this joy? Can you, can you send a text? Can you write more in a Christmas card than just Merry Christmas? Can you take someone out for coffee? Can you stay around after to encourage someone? We are put here together in this place, in community, to build each other up to maturity in Christ. Your personal faith is not just up to you. It's dependent upon all of us here. So meditate upon this. Let it be in your relationships. And this Christmas, as you prepare your hearts to celebrate and your tables to welcome people in, do it with the joy of knowing that you have been set free from sin, that you've been given peace with God, and that your Savior has come to bring you home. But don't just keep that joy to yourself. Show it to others. Tell them of the good news of why we are celebrating. Remind each other. And may the light shine on people who have walked in darkness this Christmas. May you know your need for Jesus. And may you experience the joy of knowing Christ. We're going to sing in a second to respond to God's word. And, and as we do so, I really want you to think about these lyrics that come up. Because they, they both point us backwards to consider the Christmas story. But also forwards to the joy that is set before us. And as we sing, let that, let that joy burst out as we encourage one another to look up to Christ. We all need Jesus. But don't just look back. Let's look forward as well. Let's stand now as we come together and sing as with gladness.